Don't talk to me unless it's about Kishibashi. Kishibashi is a musician in a genre all his own. He plays the violin, sings, uses loop pedals, so much more. Today's episode is all about how amazing his music and live shows are, with lots of songs sprinkled throughout for you to enjoy. Remember, I do many episodes with listeners as co-hosts or contributors, so go find out how you and I can talk about something we're both obsessed with by signing up for my newsletter at DontTalkToMePod.com. I'm joined today by Kai and Jess. Hi, I'm Kai. And hi, I'm Jess. And we met on the lovely internet, actually with Kishibashi's help. I uh, was at, he played at the Oregon Symphony, and I was sitting behind someone who talked about how it was their 12th Kishibashi show. And I thought that was so cool because he's only been a solo artist for 10 years. Um and after when I got home, I was like, I should have, you know, found out who that guy was and talked to him on my podcast. And so I posted something on Instagram saying, Kishibashi, help me find this person. And then both of you, Kai and Jess, were two, two of several people who messaged and said, you know, that's not me, but that's really cool. And like, I love his music, too. And we never found that man, but I found both of you, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> which is like so cute. And I think it speaks to like Kishibashi and his like fandom. I just yes. feel like it's all so wholesome and cute. So I love how it came together like that. Yes, it really is so wholesome. <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to hear first, how did you both start listening to his music? Yeah, um, I guess I can start. Um, so I was actually introduced to Kishibashi by um, my best friend, Alex, um, in like freshman year of college. He sent me his tiny desk actually. Um, and that was definitely like the big hook that got me into him. Um, I, I just remember watching it and being like blown away by his looping and his singing and everything. And it was funny because when I was uh, a kid growing up, I actually was learning the cello and I gave it up like pretty early on in middle school, but I was learning the cello and my uh, music teacher I remember one of our lessons, she like busted out a loop pedal. And this was the first, I didn't know like what it was. And she busted out a loop pedal and started looping her, her cello and like making a song on the spot. And I was like blown away. So it was really cool that like, there was a weird like through line between my cello teacher and uh, like discovering my favorite, favorite artist. Uh, so funny to hear that Kishi was introduced to you to a best friend because that was my same story as well. Uh, my best friend, Rebecca, had heard Kishi um, on All Things Considered, All Songs Considered on NPR. Um, and she's one of those music seeker type of people. So she will go see anyone, anywhere, at any time if she just likes one of their songs. Kishi um, happened to be playing at Great Scott in Boston which is a sadly now closed venue, but it was a great little tiny venue uh, that was in the Boston area. And it was for his first tour, his 151A tour. Um, so she said, hey, there's this great musician that's playing. You should come along, tag along for the night. Um, I had zero idea of what to expect. I had never heard his music before. And I was just completely floored, um, both at his 
you know, performance. And then also the looping really also got me as well. I, I had never seen a musician play or utilize an instrument that way, um, especially an instrument that I think I associated more with classical music. So I was really enamored with this use of the violin in this kind of like very bizarre and engaging way. Um, and to this day, I kick myself because I was in the bathroom the first time he played Manchester. And I remember washing my hands thinking, I'm missing it. <laughs> I have to get back out there. This is the most amazing song. Um, and I've been seeing him play ever since then. Every time he came to the area that I was living in, um, I haven't missed a show if I've been able to make it since then. Awesome. I also, I saw him first on tour for 151A and yeah, I was living in San Francisco at the time and some friends invited me and I didn't really follow much by live music at that time. Um, so I would just kind of go along and yeah, I remember also just being so enamored and I remember I, I kind of always have this experience. I'm, I usually go to bed really early. So at concerts for new people, I'm always like, should I really stay? Like, it's 10.30 p.m. and they haven't started. Like, is this going to be good? <laughs> is this going to be worth it? Um, and so I'm always about to go home. And I remember actually I had gone on a very long run the day before and my legs were so tired. And I was like, I don't know, I might just like go. And then I was just dancing and had so much fun and it was so, so good. And I also, you know, I don't know any other artists who play the violin um, and like not in a classical way. So I loved that part of it. Um, and... Yeah, and have I hadn't seen him live since then, actually, um, which now I'm kicking myself for. I, it took me a while to realize that, like, you could sign up for newsletters to, like, find out when people yeah. play concerts. <laughs> so now I'm all over that. Um, and I just got tickets today for his show in Portland in June. Awesome. Hey, me too. <laughs> Great. Yes. I actually just saw him last night because he was in New York last night. <laughs> That's right. That was last night. I texted both my little siblings to go and they could not make it. I was like, you're missing out. Yeah, it was a great show. And oh, that's so good. Yeah. I love how, like, I feel like his live performances are such a huge part of why people love him so much. And I, I was like listening to him on Spotify, like for a few months before I saw him in like live for the first time and i don't know it was just like something like clicked with his music when he was performing it live where like i was listening to the songs and like learning the words and singing along but like when i saw him perform it live like the emotions were just like like i could tell like oh i totally get the feeling that you had when you wrote this song and it's just like going straight into my heart and it's amazing <laughs> yes he is really special live Actually, my, so this, when he played at the Oregon Symphony a few months ago, I brought my husband and he didn't know his music. And you can tell we're similar because before we left, he was like, I'm really tired. Do you want to go to this whole concert? And I was like, I'm not leaving early. Like you can get a cab home, but like, what? <laughs> no way. Um, and he was all set to like leave the intermission. And then once he started playing, he was, he said, okay, I'm staying. <laughs> yeah. I also feel like you have to stay through a full Kishi show to the end because he normally does an encore. And in the pre-pandemic world, uh, encores from what I had observed and shows I've been to, really, he always came into the audience. And so um, the very last show that I saw before the pandemic started and the, you know, our everyone's lives changed was a Kishi show. Um, and it was for the Omanyari tour. And he came out and every all the musicians on stage played with him in the center of the room and everyone lighting him with his phones. 
Um, and being able to hear those songs, you know, without any sort of amplification and just kind of having this intimate experience, I think was one of my best out of body experiences at live music, where I still think back to that moment and get goosebumps thinking about it because it was just so raw and you really could, like when you say I could feel it through my body, I could feel that music resonating through my whole body. And that was like incredibly special. Yeah. I remember there was a show in New York and I think it was the first Kishibashi show that I went to. And me and my friends were like in the middle of the crowd and we had a great time the whole concert. And then he left and then he came back out for the encore. And then he was like, okay, like clear out of space underneath that disco ball. And then me and my friends like looked up and the disco ball was right above us. And we we're like, oh my God. <laughs> so then he, we were like first row right there. So then after that, every Kishibashi concert I went to, I was like, don't go to the front, like go to the middle, just in case like he does that. Cause it, it would be worth it if you get there. Yeah, That's I amazing. almost didn't go to that show too, because uh, I normally go to shows with my best friend, Rebecca, when she was, you know, when I was still live in the same area, she's back in Boston. Um, and oftentimes I'd bring my husband as well, who's also, a, I have turned into a big fan, but neither of them were available to go to that show. And I felt really uncertain about like, is it weird that I'm going to a show by myself? I've never gone to a show by myself before. And I'm so glad that they both encouraged me because I would have missed out on that moment had I been, mm -hmm. you know, let the like social anxiety of being the one alone weirdo at the show keep <laughs> me from getting there. <laughs> well, I don't remember that from when I saw him play, which was so long ago. And what's funny is when he played, Jess, did you see him at the Oregon Symphony? I did. Yeah. Okay. So do you remember his encore from that show? <laughs> he comes back and he just like, he's on the ground with the pedals and is just making some weird sounds and it's like 45 seconds and then he's done. And he was like, sorry guys, that was the spookiest encore ever. I didn't prepare anything. <laughs> and I was like, wait, but you're like, you have all these songs in your mind. But like, of course, I know musicians do like to rehearse it and stuff, but I was, it was very strange. <laughs> I was really actually, it was, it was, um, it was interesting. So I think I've seen Kishi now, I don't know, maybe 15 times over the course of his career. And I could see that he was nervous playing with the Oregon Symphony, which I found to be so endearing. And I think that, you know, he does a lot of improvisation and a lot of in the moment. I think that's why he's so fun to watch perform. And I can imagine somebody that performs in that way, moving to a symphony model where, you know, you've got all these incredibly talented and a ton of musicians sitting behind you that maybe you feel like the expectations are a lot higher because you want to impress them or like not mess up in front of them. Um, so I, I thought that that was really funny too. Of like, oh, he like, he didn't think about that everyone that's been to a show of his before would be expecting this encore. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited to see when he comes to Portland, um, what he will do for an encore. And I hope, you know, he'll still be able to come out into the audience, even though it's still kind of sketchy times for everyone. Yeah. Well, yeah, I imagine it's different playing with the symphony too, because it's not like you can just improvise, like you, you all rehearse together. Um, and it was so endearing to hear him talk about being like, he talked openly about like, I'm kind of nervous. I haven't done this in a while. And like, you know, he messed up some lyrics here and there. And that was so, it was so satisfying for me to actually like see that in a concert as opposed to just seeing like total perfection. Um, and I actually had learned that, um, the 151A, did either of you know the actual meaning of like the name of that album? 
No, I was hoping you were going to tell me today, though. <laughs> yeah. So I just learned this uh, in doing research for talking to you both that it actually comes from a Japanese word uh, or phrase, Ichigo, Ichie, and it translates roughly to once in a lifetime chance or more literally one time, one meeting. And he was saying he gave quotes about how he uses that phrase to help himself on stage to not be nervous of like when I make a stake, mistake, uh, you know, one time, one meeting, it's over. Um, and I thought that was beautiful. I think that's lovely. I also think it's, you know, I think part of his sound is the mistakes or is the unintentional notes that come out and the way that things meld together when you're using this looping. So I think that's really beautiful. Well, we can start talking about that album now. So this was his first album came out in, it's funny, the internet, some places it says it came out in 2012, other places 2013, came out in one of those years. <laughs> um, and I'm pretty sure it was performed and produced entirely by him. I don't think he had other people working on it. Um, and some funny things that I found out when I was learning about the lyrics is he uses Japanese phrases throughout, like especially in the looping, that kind of background sounds. And some of them have a meaning, but then others are kind of like gibberish, like they real words and phrases, but that don't mean something to the song. Like there's one phrase that's like, I got stabbed in a kabuki or something. And like, that's, that's the phrase that's looping and looping. Um, so it'd be cool to listen to his music if you spoke Japanese. Um, and yeah, we could talk about our favorite songs, my favorite songs, which is so hard to pick. Cause I really like them all, uh, from this album, I think are Manchester bright whites, and I am the Antichrist to you. How long will it be mine? I haven't felt this alive in a long time. All the streets are warm today. Hey, read the signs. I haven't been this alive in a long time. The sun is up, the sun will stay. With Manchester, I really love the parallels between a book and a song because I also really, really love novels. And I just like I, I've realized as I've gotten like deeper into like with time, I the artists that I love, the musicians I love, I love their lyrics. Um, although Kishibashi is kind of different because his lyrics are a little bit hard for me to understand at first listen. So his music at first here isn't so much about that, but then when I list then when I read the lyrics there amazing and so poetic um so i like tying together like the power of words in music and writing and books and you know it's kind of about like everything is everything in life is kind of a love story and there are many ways for a story to end it keeps going back to like and now the story has its proper ending um and like things aren't all supposed to end one way like we need all the different kinds of endings so that's what i love about manchester and then bright whites i Feel like that's also about love and the complicated world we live in and you know he has these phrases like living in a land that went astray from history um i feel like a lot of parallels in that song to his latest album of like what do you we still live life amidst cruelty and crisis and you know he still tells a love story on the latest album that's also about japanese internment and it's you know you don't separate those two things they're always happening at the same time and then I am the Antichrist to you. 
I heard him. I read a quote that he described this as a strange love song. Um, and I honestly, I was like, I don't know if I really get it. I feel like this song is kind of more about someone falling from their pedestal and like someone else seeing them like they can do no right. Um, and but I also I do feel like with his lyrics that there is probably a lot that I'm missing because I think I'm more of a literal thinker than a poetic thinker. And I do not think that's how he writes. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with like your thoughts about the lyrics where like, um, especially on the first few listens, I'm not really paying attention to the lyrics as much. And a lot of times with like, when I'm listening to Kishibashi, it's just the the feelings of the songs. And like, I know the words, but even if I know every word, like I don't, I'm not thinking about their meaning, like they just sound nice to me. And like, <laughs> like the order and the rhymes like give this great feeling. Um, and one of my favorites definitely is Manchester too. And I think it's a great example of that because the, I feel like it, it starts off very like tender and soft, but once the chorus hits, it gets very like grand and, um, he has like the lyrics where he's talking about like the streets feel warm and the sun is shining and you get that feeling like you feel like you're walking down the street on a sunny day and like you're in love and that's what I love about his songs because they emit those feelings so well yeah I love that line that's it's something like you know I haven't felt this alive in a long time and I think when you listen to that song that's how I feel as well it's I it's funny because Manchester is also one of my favorites and I feel like it's a song that for him has always come up in shows because it's just, it's almost impossible not to love that song because it's yeah. so wonderful. Um, I also really like Bright Whites, but I think it's more about my show experience because Bright Whites, oftentimes he'll play it at the end of the show and then there will be a big confetti canyon burst. <laughs> and it's like you you have this great experience of all this great music and this shared experience with, with people. And then Bright Whites comes on and the confetti canyon goes and it's just like, this moment of pure bliss that you can share in this crowd environment. Um, so I like that song a lot because it just always, it makes me smile every time I hear it. And I always think about the confetti cannon. I hope to see it. Did he have it in New York? Um, I couldn't see like all the way up, but I don't know. There was confetti. I don't know if he had like the trusty cannon though. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for the Portland yeah. show. <laughs> I also love Atticus in the Desert. I think that is my favorite song off of 151A. Um, I love the imagery and the parallels that he creates like of all this like dry desert scenery and like the the love story that he's and it's it's I feel like it's kind of an abusive love that's like taking energy from him and sucking him dry and he has that line where it's like uh in the desert you suck my finger it wasn't meant to be it was like water from leather and he has all these like, I don't know, like dry desert um, verbiage. And I just love that parallel. But I like listening to it. I wouldn't think that it's about like heartbreak or like a, necessarily a negative love story because it he's like like the whistling around and it, it is kind of like an uplifting, uh, uplifting song. And I didn't kind of like realize that you could, if you read the lyrics like I did earlier when I was researching for this, is it is kind of like abusive and sad and like, oh man, maybe that, but like the whole point is we were happy and we tried it and it kind of sucked and didn't work out. 
he does have a special way of he doesn't necessarily match the mood of the sound to the lyrics um which i think is i mean it's it's nice as a listener having these kind of upbeat songs and also i i feel like it you know nothing in life is like only bad or only good um and so i feel like you get that from his songs that are kind of mixed messages like that yeah, I think it also, to me, I see parallel of like finding the good, even when there's bad. And I think you can see a lot of that in his songs. Like even if you're in this really crummy situation, there's some beautiful melody that's resonating underneath that you can choose to listen to or not. So I hear that in his songs as well. Definitely. Any other favorites from 151A? I will say I do love Wonder Woman, Wonder Me, just because it's just such a gorgeous, like, kind of haunting vibe that he doesn't really explore too much in as many other songs. But um, I do, there was one time when they were performing it live and they were doing it all acoustic, and it was him and Tall Tall Trees and I think Emily Hope Price. But um, there's, like, that one point in the song where there's, like, the yawn, and they're all like huddled around one microphone and they all yawn together and it was really <laughs> cute. I thought it was funny. There was kind of a funny story with that song too because he had like basically like a ask me anything on Instagram or something. And I submitted a, a question because I, I always loved the the lyric when Pluto was demoted. I felt a sigh of relief. And this is another example of like me not really listening to the lyrics because I messaged <laughs> and I was like, what did you mean when you said when Pluto was demoted, I felt a sigh of relief? And he answers it on the thing and he goes, well, I believe the next line is I never knew why. <laughs> and I was like, oh, damn, like... <laughs> If I just listened to the next two seconds, I would have answered my own question, but he kind of boomed me, but it was funny. <laughs> well, then we can go to Light, which came out in 2014 and is spelled L-I-G-H-G-H-T. And so I Googled what that <laughs> word meant. And it comes from this one word poem, which I didn't even know this was a thing, one word poems, um, by a poet named Aram Saroyan. And Kishibashi said, the poem's blatant assault on literary convention and classical form was attractive to me. And then once I learned that, I was like, oh, that definitely fits with his musical style that he just kind of, you know, goes outside of genres. I don't even know what genre to call his music. What did either of you describe it as? It's so hard. I always just I'm just like, it's a really he's a really awesome violin pop guy. Like, you just need to listen to him, <laughs> like, when I'm trying to convince other people. Yeah, I don't I don't even have a way to describe it. Like, pop doesn't really describe it, and indie doesn't really describe it. But there, I think there's some of that all in his music. Um, for people that have never listened to him before, I, I typically am like, think about if you were to take Andrew Bird, but add a little bit of a Japanese element and then get really weird about it, that might get you <laughs> kind of close to what Kishi does. Yeah, it's like it's like violin, but it's cool. Like, no offense to other violins, but <laughs> but maybe a little offense. <laughs> um, so on this album, 
Some of my favorites. I really love Bittersweet Genesis for him and her. He opened with that at the Oregon Symphony. And I love this idea he has of kind of like joking around about, uh, you know, the universe and like how things are created and higher powers. Um, and so he's kind of making a joke with the song about like, what if Earth is just this game of two celestial bodies, their life and love story and everything on Earth is just kind of like playing that out for them. Um, and it's the birth of it, the death of it. And like, I'm pretty sure in the when the song, the world ends. Um, and but also it sounds like a happy song. And it's uh, I feel like a nice reminder of, you know, oh, yeah, everything. I don't really want the world to end, but like everything within our lives has beginnings and endings. Um, and, you know, we think we know what's going on in the world, but like we really have no idea. I love that song too. And I, um, when I first heard it, I, his vocal tones really different in that song. And I thought, is that him singing? And I went to the album, to the back of the album to look, to see, was there a different vocalist? Cause it's this different approach. Um, so I really like the kind of way he's changed that in that song. In the beginning, we will scramble together, mixed in a celestial ball and hand fluffed with a feather. And the tears of bliss were not amiss, it was a good day. On the second day, we created the earth, tickled in irony as we made love upon its girth. And to our delight, the sun gave us the stars. Creation of the moon was a miracle of light Descended from a rift in the dark star of night My veins pulsed butter as it I really love Q&A a lot. I think it's a beautiful love song. Um, this one too, I think my show experience, like the experience I've, I've had seeing him play really plays into how much I love this song. Uh, my husband actually asked me to marry him outside of the Columbus Theater before a kissy show in Rhode Island. Um, and we went into awesome. the show and the Columbus theater has this kind of like weird indentation at the very front of the stage and then seats behind it. Um, and so I kind of like, looked. there was like a person that worked there sitting on the stage and said, can we stand there? And he was like, oh yeah, come on down. You can stand right there. People will, will fill in, but you can be the first ones to stand like right in the front. And so I'm short. Uh, and so the stage was kind of like here and I, I, you know, put my elbows on the stage and Kishi and Mike from Tall Tall Trees opened the show with some acoustic and they played that song. So, you know, being in this bliss of just getting engaged to the person that you love and want to spend the rest of your life with and then seeing your favorite musician sing this beautiful love song. I think I had big heart eyes in that moment and will always love that song as a result. Yeah. Well, one of the other people who messaged, responded to my Instagram about this, uh, they are getting married at a Kishibashi show. I think it was actually, it was on Monday. So I've, I've been meaning to message them back and be like, listen, I want the details on this, that they, like I am their husband and a friend was going to be their officiant and they were going to do it like while the show was happening. <laughs> That's so awesome. That's yeah. the dream. <laughs> yeah. Q&A is definitely like the love song of me and my partner's relationship too. We, uh, I showed it to them. Like, I think that was like the first or second song, Kishibashi song I showed to them. Um, and now whenever we go to his concert, like we hear like the first chord and then we're both immediately just ugly crying. <laughs> yeah, It's a schmoopy song. It's like the yeah. schmoopiest song for sure. Yeah. I love it's, it. 
yeah it's so cute and pure and like the imagery of the fireflies and like how dreamy it is and like the biggest takeaway that i get away from it is just like his whole idea that like no matter what life we're living or like if there's a parallel universe like we're always gonna find each other and we're always gonna like fall in love and yeah it's just so cute I think he mentioned at a show too that he wrote it for friends whose names started with Q and A. Mm. I think it was an homage to friends that I imagine were in love that had those names. So I, you know, I really love that, that so many people can find that connection to the song and have that be their love ballad. So yeah. I like that we're sharing the love ballad with our yeah. friends. Awesome. <laughs> I really also love philosophizing it, chemicalized with it. And um yeah i think that was his, his final song at um at the symphony and i know my husband was like oh i really love that last song what was that that was a really fun song um and i it's funny enough i listened to that song so much and i had never thought about like the words uh you know especially the title um and that you know i think it's about these like the two ways to look at love like one is in a kind of philosophical way and focusing on kind of the the thoughts you have around love and then the other is like this is just a chemical thing. Like, you know, it's purely hormones in your body and like you're just being controlled by it as opposed to like you thinking you're kind of in control of it. Um, and I I do love that, like thinking about, you know, oh, you know, I you can think so much is intentional in relationships and then like how much of it is actually just our hormones kind of playing things out. Like we don't know. <laughs> Mr. Steak, which I feel like is just like the opposite. Maybe yes. I'm missing the hidden meaning, but <laughs> I think it's just like a goofy song that's like fun and funny and it's like perfect to dance to. Um, yeah, I love that song so much. It's just so fun. And that, yeah. And when he brings out Mr. Steak and yeah, it's great. Is he okay? So I have not seen that song live. Who is missed? Like, is it someone in a steak costume? <laughs> yeah, it's like the most ridiculous, like cartoonish steak that has just like eyeballs and there's someone in the suit and they're like dancing around while while they play the song it's yeah amazing. one of the shows where mr steak made an appearance it was the person who was working the merch booth yeah and so i was chatting with them and they're like you'll see me on stage later <laughs> but you won't actually see me because i'll be in a steak costume <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely i think you know 
I don't know if he was intending to have the dance song, but I think of all of his repertoire, it is the dance song. Yeah. And it's so great, especially um, so seeing him with the Oregon Symphony was, I think, a lot more stuffy and formal than I'm used to for seeing his performances. Um, I had also had the chance to see him with a string quartet in Boston as well. And that was weird because it was the first seated show that I had seen him at. Um, and at the end of the show, he was like, okay, everyone get out of those chairs and like played Mr. Steak. And it felt a little bit more genuine to the performance experience that I was used to. Um, so it's just a good way to like get people engaged in dancing. And it's awesome to just write. I would like to think with that song that it is just literally about like having a good meal, a good steak and just being totally silly and goofy. Um, and that's awesome. Like not enough artists do that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, there's not enough artists writing songs about food. Just to be <laughs> <laughs> Fantasia, um, even though it, I think it's kind of the opposite of the love song in Fantasia to me feels like a breakup song. Um, and there is a really great music video for it. And the music video very much feels like a breakup music video as well. Um, but I think it has Manchester vibes to me where it really is like a storytelling song and you kind of feel the story as you progress through the song. But whereas Manchester, I leave feeling uplifted every time I listen to in Fantasia, I do I feel a little depressed. <laughs> but I think that maybe was the intent because I, I really do see that as like, that was the end of a relationship kind of song. I also, I really love Ha 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 part one and part two, which is also just like awesome to name your songs that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it seems like it's about some kind of on and off relationship, on and off emotions. It's going back and forth but then also kind of like making fun of that experience instead of having it be all heavy. This is so hard. Like look at us being idiots going back and forth again. <laughs> yeah. I, I especially love part two because the, like all the synths and like laser sounds and everything is so awesome. And especially like the progression from one, five, one, eight to light or light. I don't know how you're supposed to, <laughs> I always I don't know. say like, light, light, light. <laughs> um, but like, I feel like he's very experimental in all of his stuff. And I just loved how it progressed from 1518 to the second album and especially in Ha 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 Part 2 and just how epic it feels and how different it feels from a lot of his other songs. I really love it. He does do a really good job of looking at all four of his albums they always have a very distinct, this is Kishibashi sound, but they feel different enough that it doesn't feel like he's just remaking the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I was just having that conversation yesterday about how he doesn't suffer from like what I call cake syndrome, right? Like the band cake makes a lot of great music, but it's all exactly the same. Every single album, like I think Kishi always sounds like him, but manages to mature and iterate on the musical themes he wants to explore. So you kind of are always like, yep, I know that sound, but here's something new and different 
um, that I haven't heard from him before, which I think is what makes him such an amazing musician and also makes me want to keep going back to see his shows again and again, too. Yeah, yeah. Then his third album, Sonderlust, came out in 2016. And he has written about that this was, I think, one of his hardest albums to make. And he talked about this was a really hard time for him. He was separating from his wife. He was feeling very stuck musically. And a quote from him is, this album is straight from my soul. I question everything about what it means to love and desire, the difference between loving someone and being in love. And the word sonder or sonder, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, have, you, have either of you heard that word before? Only when, because he, he did like a little speech about the meaning of sonderlust. I forget the exact thing, but yeah, that was the first time that I had heard the word sonder. So. Yeah, I had heard about this the definition of this word before and had forgotten it. And it was always, I was like, what is that word? Because it's my favorite definition of a word. And it's, it's about this realization that like every random person you pass has just as rich and deep of an inner life as you. And like all the same, you know, number of emotions and things going on in your inner world, like everyone else has that too. Um, And you're just like, you know, a background character in their like play of life. Um, and that made me so happy when I realized that's what this album, the name came from. Cause I just, I love that concept. Do you remember more what he said about like making this phrase Sonder Lust? Yeah. I think the second half is coming from Wanderlust, if I remember. So he's just like mashed them together. So, okay. My favorite songs from this one, uh, I really love mm, Lover. And I like that it's not, he's basically <laughs> saying my lover in the song, but I like that it's mm, Lover. <laughs> Um, and to me, this is my favorite love song of his, and it feels like just a straight up love song, like nothing else complicated, nothing just like just a pure happy love song. Did you mean to misinterpret images of our innocence and vestiges of virtue? Would you feel? Pity for the masses who are adding and subtracting with scandals that we made together. also feel like is pretty much just a totally fun love song i did see a quote from him about like this song is about how love's not easy and i was like really that song feels like really easy and fun um (laughs) and i searched for like one line about like love doesn't grow on trees and i was like maybe that's the hard part (laughs) like (laughs) um and he seems pretty fun (laughs) yeah (laughs) um he actually kai when he played at the symphony there was a typo in the brochure um the program and it said homebody and it was funny he like called out the the woman who must make the program he was like i think cheryl made a mistake here oh no (laughs) poor cheryl and he he called around another time when like i think she credited the song home like is where i want to be uh to him and he was like i didn't write that song cheryl cheryl made another mistake (laughs) but then he tried to sing the song homebody (laughs) and he was like 
it was hard because obviously I was not always used to singing. He was like, should I do homebody or homie body? And like just made up this whole song on the spot. That's funny. That was fun. That was really fun. <laughs> also, I did not want to be that person that messed up the program in that minute in that moment. <laughs> I really love Say Yeah, specifically because it has the raddest flute solo that I've ever heard oh, recorded. Yeah. And I just I want to know who is that flute person. And like, where, where can I see them play that solo live? <laughs> um, I, they did, ha- there was a musician that was touring with him on one of the, I think it was probably on the Sonderless tour. Um, her name was Pip the Pansy. She mm. was very fun to watch. She had this like really great, it was almost like a Zelda quiver arrow holder, but for her flute and it was all like floral. And so she'd whip her flute out and like get into the solo and that was really fun to watch. Um, but I just, I love that flute solo. And every time it comes on, I just get very fired up about it. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's like the hypest flute solo of all time. It's so great. And I, I remember the first time I saw him. I can't remember if it was the Sonderless tour or maybe one right before or something. But I remember they played that song. And it's also one of my favorites on Sonderless. And uh, I remember like, the song got to the point right before the flute solo. And I was like, oh, there's going to be a flute solo, but I don't see anybody with a flute. And I can't remember if it was Pip the Pansy or somebody else, but somebody just pulled the flute out of nowhere and then just started ripping into it. And I was like, oh my God, like it was the greatest moment of my life. (laughs) It must've been that same person. I think think that was the moment where I was like, I want to play the flute if I get to carry it around in a quiver on my back. Awesome. I also really like Can't Let Go Juno, even though it's so sad. I think um, I had, you know, kind of heard the the intention behind this album too. And you can feel that when you look into the lyrics and you can really feel it when you listen to this song. Um, to me, this seems like competing love stories. Like, do I stay with this person who I've been with for a really long time and I have this history with? Or you know, do I kind of fan this flame with this other person who's maybe exciting and new and, um, you know, that kind of lust feeling. I feel like two competing love stories when I hear this song. Yeah, I've seen, I saw a quote from him that he, at least, this is probably from the time of when the album was coming out, that he found that song really hard to play live, that it was like his most emotional and heartbreaking song. And I think he, I think he, I recall him playing it with the Oregon Symphony. And I think he even said like, still to this day, it was hard, hard for him to play live, which says a lot that you're willing to, you know, dig up all of your personal relationship history in music, because I think, you know, um, I'm someone that sings and like, if I'm upset, it's hard for me to even get anything out because more comes out when you're emoting musically. So I can imagine how difficult it is playing that and kind of reliving those experiences every time you play that song and then choosing to willingly do that because you're writing your own set list. So you can always just drop that one off if you really wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Kai, what are some of your favorites from this album? I think my two favorites are also Say Yeah and Honey Buddy. Those were my two um, and I think Malover also is my third favorite. So I think we already covered it, but, um, yeah, I, I do really like Malover too. And yeah, I think I'm going to start pronouncing it in lover like you because Malover <laughs> is a little too close to Milady. So, 
but yeah, I, I just think that this album in general is just so other other than Can't Let Go Judo. It feels more like dancey and like there's more like uplifting bops on it. Maybe I'm just only listening to Honey Body on repeat, but <laughs> it, it does feel like a little bit more poppy and, and dancey than some of the others. Which is interesting that it came out at a, a time that was hard in his life. And I've, I've heard other artists describe how their albums, a lot of times the sound doesn't match like what was going on in their life at the time, you know, mm-hmm. that it can actually come out the opposite way of the experience you were going through. was Omeyari in 2019. And this is the album that goes along with his film, which I'm assuming was supposed to come out a lot earlier than now. But with COVID, I imagine things got very delayed. Um, So that film is coming out. I think it's coming out publicly April 1st. Um, So I'm really excited to to see that. And a quote from, uh, from Kishi on this was, I didn't want this project to be about history, but rather the importance of history and the lessons we can learn. I gravitated toward themes of empathy, compassion, and understanding as a way to overcome fear and intolerance. But I had trouble finding an English title for the piece. Omayari is a Japanese word. It doesn't necessarily translate as empathy, but it refers to the idea of creating compassion towards other people by thinking about them. And he played uh, a lot of film at the symphony just was were those pieces Omayari or like the film or is that was that separate? Do so you know? yeah, so I think uh, my interpretation is that Omayari was kind of the like I'm going to explore this, and then I I know that the film. So I was a, a Kickstarter backer from the film, so I've kind of been following the film's journey for a long time. Um, he went to different sites where people were incarcerated, like Japanese internment sites across the country. And played. And so a lot of the film is the exploration of this part of American history, but then also footage of him improvising or playing music at these sites. Um, So there was some songs that he played with the symphony that were from the album, but then there was also a lot of, you know, more instrumental lyricalist music that I think probably uh, will will show up in the film. So some of the film that we saw will be in this bigger film that's coming out. That's my guess. Um, yeah. I, I think so, because it seems like it was a lot of historical footage that really related back to Japanese internment. And I know that that's the the basis of the film is to talk about that and explore that history. And then also, I think, you know, for him being somebody whose parents immigrated from Japan, um, kind of exploring that history that he maybe wasn't directly related to, but still has this kind of thread to within his family history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I love this album, um, and I think it's amazing what he's doing with both the album and with this movie. Um, I'm half Japanese, and my mom 
came to the US in like the in the 70s or 80s. Um, and growing up in the American education system, I didn't really learn that much about Japanese American relocation during World War II, but uh, I did have an internship at the Smithsonian Museum of American History, and um, I was helping out with an upcoming exhibit about this period of time and Executive Order 9066 and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it was really moving, and I like learned a lot about, even though, I guess kind of similar, but like even though my family isn't directly impacted by it, you know, it's it's crazy to learn about what sort of stuff happened to these American citizens just because of the fact that they were Japanese and they were all throughout the West Coast were relocated to all these camps and yeah, it was it was really insane learning about all of that and then. I think within a year or two after that internship ended, then he announced this album. So it was just a lot of feels going on when when I first uh, heard this album, um, especially just like, I'm, I'm really excited to see the movie because what I gather is he's going to talk a lot about his own feelings with being like Japanese and American and what that means and what that has meant throughout history. Um, and I kind of have those same thoughts and I'm like kind of looking to him for, for guidance on some of that. Um, and it's like a little complicated because I'm half, so my dad is American and my mom's Japanese. So it's even like more distilled and it's like some days, like how much of the, of the Japanese culture are you supposed to claim or can you claim? And, how, how that's complicated throughout history is just a really interesting and uh, interesting subject and it, it just hits close to home. So I know I'm just gonna be crying for the entire movie when it comes out and I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Did he play any clips of the film at the concert you went to? I'm guessing this was like a specific to the symphony thing because it was like a, you know, we we're all seated kind of that environment. Yeah, no, he didn't play any clips uh, in the concert last night yeah um yeah it's it was really interesting to hear him like he you know connected he had these kind of little chapters he was showing of like kind of going through like here's what happened first and then what happened next and then you know and then they let people take this quiz to like prove that they were loyal and then they did this and that um and then he would connect it to like and then i wrote a song about um you know, we talked about the summer of 42, which I really love that song and how yeah. it's just a pure love song. And he thought about, you know, a soldier um, who, you know, a person, a man who would have been this camp, fell in love with a woman and then was enlisted in the army and never met them again. Um, and how they're, again, like kind of, um, I think this is what I was talking about with Bright Whites, that, you know, there was horrific things were going on and people were like still falling in love. Um, and it was kind of haunting in these, he has a lot of footage from the internment camps and you'll see footage of like people just like smiling and laughing on an ice skating rink. Um, and you're like, wow, if I had no context for this, like I would have no idea where they were. Um, and how is it that, you know, humans can be going through such like, can go through such pain and still find happiness. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what he 
does with, you know, I don't know if it's going to be an hour, a 90 minute, like with the whole thing, how he tells that whole story. Yeah. And on top of that, like it's, it's the weird like contrast of like all these terrible things that are happening in these concentration camps, but it's in like gorgeous locations in like Montana and Utah and like the backdrops are these like amazing mountains and everything. And within the camps, um, a lot of the, a lot of the Japanese Americans were like getting together to like do things. So that's like the, um, the album art is all these carved birds. So there was a guy in the camp who was like hand carving um, birds from wood and then painting them. And I think he had like a couple of those Audubon bird guides. So he was doing those and working at the, at the Smithsonian, um, I didn't get to, I saw a few of these birds and it was crazy when I saw the album art. Cause I was like, Oh, I think I, I, I saw those. Like, it's so cool. Um, so it's, it's another, it's an example of like, just great, like human resilience and, I think a lot of like what his music, like we were talking about before, like finding the beauty in even the tough times. And there's great examples of that throughout this whole experience. And I think Summer of 42 is a great example of like what that could be a lot, as well as the birds. And there were, there were like art schools and there's gorgeous like watercolor paintings that came out of these camps. Um, yeah. I love knowing that about the album cover because I didn't know what the birds were for. Yeah, it was it was just people trying to pass the time and, you know, they're like locked away and can't do anything, but they still found a way to like express themselves in super creative and really beautiful ways. I also, from what I understand too, like there was this, you know, there was communities that were formed there um, in this terrible adverse conditions that was cold and, you know, you're not getting the resources that you necessarily need. Um, I think something I learned at his his last concert with the Oregon Symphony was the role that Portland, the city of Portland, had to play, um, where people were kept in horse stables before they were moved to these camps. Like citizens of Portland were put yeah. in horse stables because of their ethnicity. You know, um, I can't imagine somebody coming to my home being like, "Sorry, you gotta go because you're wearing polka dots." And so, see ya. You're gonna get moved to this place you've never been and like basically live in a barrack. Um, and yet still, you know, people were able to form communities and make these connections and fall in love and make beautiful birds and artwork and somehow continue to live in a way that brought them some form of joy, despite a really terrible and completely unfair situation being presented to them. I think this album has not a single bad song. I don't really think there's any bad Kishi songs, but this album is one that I have no problems listening to completely all the way through excessively. I don't know about you two, but when I got my Spotify report at the end of the year, I think Spotify kind of laughed at me and was like, you listen to that one album a lot. What's that all about? <laughs> Hi, do you have any standout songs from this album? Yeah, I, uh, I especially love theme from Jerome. Um, the first time I heard the song, it was he was playing a uh, string quartet in New York. Um, and this was before Omoyari came out, but he was talking about it. And I guess he had a few songs like already written and stuff. And it was, it's funny because um, after I started listening to Kishibashi, 
in college, I went back home for a summer and me and my mom were hanging out all the time, driving all over the place. Um, and I would always play Kishibashi. And at the end of the summer, um, I, I was playing him in the car and she was like, oh, I, I love this guy. <laughs> so Aww. we like had a cute bonding moment <laughs> over Kishibashi. And it's, it's funny because like, I don't know, growing up in high school, I'm listening to like rap music and my mom's like, why do you have to listen to this music? It's so gross. And then now she's finally like loving Kishibashi. Um, but when he, when I was buying tickets to that string quartet, I was like, mom, you should come. And she was like, okay. So uh, I bought her tickets and then she came to New York and stayed in my uh, gross, tiny Chinatown apartment. And we went to this string quartet concert together. And it was amazing. It just happened to be like, he started talking about all this Japanese history. And he played this very famous Japanese song called Sukiyaki song, which Sukiyaki is like, uh, it's a Japanese dish, but the song isn't about Sukiyaki at all. It was kind of actually like a, a protest song that was written during World War II. Um, so he, he played that and it was super cute because it was a song that like I heard from my childhood, but like hadn't heard in like maybe 10, 15 years. Um, and then he he started playing theme from Jerome and he he was talking about how he found he he was trying to make a song that sounded like an old Japanese folk song. So that first like the the first like melodies that he does is very like Japanese kind of like sing songy way and then he like transitions it into like his his style of music um but so i love the song just for all of that because of like it's it's ties to like japanese culture and like first time i heard it like i was with my mom and it was really cute but i was the the message of the song is also like so heartbreaking because um it it talks about how like in that period of time i don't remember if like people weren't allowed to speak japanese in the us or in, i don't think they were allowed to read or speak japanese in the camps for sure um so there was a lot of families where like the the parents from japan stopped speaking japanese during this time period so then the the children never learned the language um and, you know, like my mom is very separated from World War II, came like decades after, but I grew up and I'd never learned Japanese either. So I kind of had this like weird connection and it's, it just makes me think about like the assimilation into American culture and the way the U.S. treats its immigrants sometimes and like how immigrants aren't always um, encouraged to embrace their culture and sometimes more forcefully than not, they're like encouraged to assimilate into American culture. Um, so that loss of language that he sings about in theme from Jerome just like hits really hard for me. Um, and I think like one of the last, and the way he like interweaves Japanese into it too. He's like singing the song then he weaves some Japanese into it and then he finishes it in English. And I think the the last verse is like um, talking about this girl who fell in love and it's kind of assumed that like they start a family and then she's like singing this song to her sons as they're falling asleep, but they don't know what it means because it's in Japanese and it's the forgotten words from Japan. 
I always cry when, when I, when I'm listening to that, like I could just be like walking around town and like music's on shuffle. And then it gets to that point of the song and I just need to like go into a corner and cry. Uh, yeah, it hits hard. I think it's also really parallel to, to the history and that loss of history that occurs. You know, you talked about how you never really learned about Japanese internment in high school. I certainly didn't learn about it in high school either. Um, you know, maybe if it was like one blip in your history book that you never really talked about again. Um, and so I started getting a little bit more information when I learned about his film. And I think there's, this is a really great example. And there's so many other examples throughout American history where there's just these terrible people have been treated terribly. And like politicians have made these terrible decisions and you know, citizens have backed it because for whatever reason in the moment, they felt like it was the right thing to do. And it's so easy to let that be lost if we don't surface that information and tell people about what happened and try to learn from the mistakes instead of repeating them, you know, as we move forward as a society. And so I think that I I hear that there too, not just the language, but also the history of, you know, what happened to this group of people and why we need to continue to talk about it and memorialize it and do what we can to be better the next time around. Yeah. He had that great quote to open the pieces of the film he was showing in, um, in Portland. And I don't think it was a quote by him. I forget who said it though, but history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. Well, so I wanted to finish by asking you both if you could ask Kishibashi questions. What would you want to know about him or his music? Or maybe you also want some more about that Pluto answer. (laughs) It will never be solved. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I've actually, funnily enough, I've actually met him very briefly a couple times. Um, Once he... A couple of years ago, he had this really funny thing on his Instagram where he was like in one of those like flight uh, membership things where you earn points the more you fly. And he was like a few points from getting to the platinum level. So he was like, oh, I'm like three days before the end of the year to get to this platinum level. So I'm going to fly to Boston. And he posted on his Instagram. He's like, I'm flying to Boston. So if anybody is in Boston, I'm going to go to this place that I love the clam chowder there. So we can all have clam chowder and then I'm going to fly back like two hours later and he was calling it Operation Platinum Chowder. <laughs> and I, I just so happened to be visiting my parents who live in Massachusetts, like an hour, hour and a half outside of Boston. And my family from Japan was also visiting. So we were all there because it was around Christmas time. So I dragged my Japanese cousins to Boston to this uh clam chatter place in Quincy Market and we met him briefly and I got him to sign uh one of my records um yeah it was really cute but uh that's amazing how many people were there not when I got there not that many I think there were like two or three people sitting at the bar and they're all just talking um that's so cool so you were like really there with him yeah it was cool and it's always funny how I don't know he's in his music, he's so emotional and he wears his heart on his sleeve. And like we were talking about with Can't Let Go Juno, like takes balls to sing about that sort of stuff and like to put it on an album and to sell that song. But I just think it's funny when like I've met him in person, he's always so awkward. 
<laughs> and like <laughs> so goofy. And I don't know if it's like he's like it's like weird because everybody loves him so much. And it, because his music is so personal that maybe he feels a little bit weird and like awkward because like, you know, so much about me, but I don't know anything about you, but it's always funny um, how awkward he is, but it's cute and endearing. Well, I imagine, I don't think I've actually met like a celebrity that I like really love their work in person, but I imagine that it probably must always feel that way. Cause it's almost like I'd expect to sit down next to him and for him to just like start singing Manchester, but like, <laughs> no, he's just a regular person who like makes small talk and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> just we, trying we to get bowl of clam chowder. Yeah, yeah. We talked about the clam chowder. It was really good. <laughs> Coincidentally enough, I have a photo of him, myself and my best friend from that first show. Cause he came out outside, you know, at the time it was, nobody really knew where he was and it was a tiny little show and, I think in the picture, he's holding this weird, like, quill feather, um, you know, and we're all 10 years younger. So it's bittersweet to look back on those memories and see those. But um, I think I'd want to ask him, you know, I'm always curious of like, artists and musicians, what are you inspired by? And who do you kind of ogle and have those celebrity hard eyes for? So I think if I were to ask him one question, it would be, you know, if you could play alongside any musician living or dead, who would it be? And why? Mm. yeah i would love to get behind the scenes of a whole you know a song from start to finish what came first was it like a, pl a piece on the violin was it a, a lyric uh, the song title a feeling you know how does that start and know you know how long it takes like how many stages it goes through who he works with when he's writing songs um and how he you know, how he puts it all together and then decides like, okay, this is done. This is the song I wanted to make. Mm. Yeah. I, I think I would just want to talk to him more about like him learning about Japanese American history and just because it's such a personal thing for me, um, just to like pick his brain about his thoughts about like being Japanese American um, in like today's society and all, all of like the the issues and benefits and not benefits that go along with that and all that sort of stuff. You know, I think like from, it's such a special experience, I think that he had, that he was able to dive so deep into the research to make this album and visit all these places. Um, I, I, yeah, I would really just want to pick his brain about that. Well, I think I might reach out to him on Instagram and see if he would like to answer any of these questions, um, <laughs> which would be really cool. <laughs> Ask the Pluto one again. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll lead with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's funny. I had been reading like a Reddit Ask Me Anything that he did. And I was so annoyed because I was like, all these questions suck. People are just asking like, what's your favorite place to get a burger in Atlanta? And like, or, or they were just like, I love you so much, which is totally fine. Like I would have written that too. Um, but I just kept thinking like, I want to actually learn some things about him and his music in this AMA. I'm not. <laughs> I would also love to hear like how him and Tall Tall Trees met because their relationship is so cute. And it's like the peak bromance that we should all strive for. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. Um, so, I don't think I know. I don't, I'm going to look up this group because I don't know them. And so did they used to play together? Tell me more about their bromance. <laughs> They're very cute. 
first and foremost. That's so the cute. biggest thing that you should know. Um, <laughs> but Tall Tall Trees, I think his name is Mike, right? Yeah, Mike Savino, I think yeah. his name is. It seems like it's a band, but it's really just one guy with a banjo. Yeah, an amazing banjo, by the way. Yeah. And an even more amazing beard. He's <laughs> When he came out uh, last night, his beard was as good as ever, but his hair was super long. So we were just screaming. It's like, Banjo Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> He's awesome. But yeah, he, he has played... I'm, I'm sure he's known Kishibashi for like years and years and years. Um, and oftentimes he tours with him. Sometimes he opens with him. But I think every Kishibashi concert that I've been to, he's at least been in the band playing with him. I think they met in New York um, when they were both mm -hmm. living in New York, from what I remember. And Mike almost always plays on Kishi's tours. Um, and he often op opens as Tall Tall Trees and then kind of acts as a member of the Kishi band. Um, they have really amazing chemistry. Um, yeah. Seeing them play Atticus in the Desert is really fun because Mike's banjo lights up from behind and he also uses it as a percussion instrument. It's like oh. this whole wonderful thing that's wonderful that's to watch. Um, and I've become a Tall Tall Trees fan person because of watching him at the shows and Tall Tall Trees is also a really great band and I think mm -hmm. has one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, and it's really cool to see how they influence each other because um, I think Tall Tall Tree's last two albums, I can hear the the collaboration of Kishi and Mike together in that music. Mm -hmm. And so it's really cool to see how Mike's music has evolved through this partnership of playing with Kishi. Um, and they do have a really adorable bromance that's just so awesome <laughs> to watch on stage. And yeah. I think Mike is worth seeing if he ever comes you know, around for Tall Tall Trees. I would recommend anybody listening to check him out too. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't know. I think the, like their bromance is just another, another like cute feather in Kishibashi's cap. Like there's just so much going around him that's like so cute, so wholesome, so pure. And like even going to concerts, uh, me and my partner went to like the first post quote unquote post COVID concert um, a month or two ago. And it was just an awful experience. Like it was way too crowded. People were like pushing around. And then last night we went and it was amazing. And like, whenever we go to a Kishibashi concert, it always just feels like we're all best friends, crying together, like laughing together, singing along together. So I think the like community that he's formed is amazing. And it's funny, my partner for, um, for Christmas, right before COVID, so I guess it was Christmas 2019, they, they surprised me with, as my Christmas present, they surprised me with uh, a trip to Amsterdam. They're like, once I got home from work, they're like, okay, you need to pack and we're gonna go to the airport. And I didn't know where we were going. And then once we got to the airport, we checked in and it was Amsterdam. And I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. And then once we got to the gate, they were like, we're going to Amsterdam, but there's a reason we're going to Amsterdam. And they handed me an envelope and the envelope was two Kishibashi ticket concerts for the, for the concert in Amsterdam. And it was just like, in, it was the most insane, like euphoric experience of my life. And it was, the reason I bring it up was because it was so amazing that even over there in Amsterdam, we still had that same feeling where like, we all knew each other, maybe like 
the rude Americans were singing a little bit too loud and a little bit <laughs> off key, but <laughs> I like that, that whole feeling felt no matter where we were, you know? That story is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that That's really beautiful about his crowd. I heard, I was reading an interview he did once with a, a Japanese news outlet and they asked him what's the difference between his Japanese fans at shows in Japan and his American fans at shows in America. He was like, probably mostly just that the Americans are more drunk. <laughs> Curious where Amsterdam falls on that scale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was definitely the most drunk person. <laughs> he, he came out into the middle of the crowd for the encore um, and played Annie Heartthief of the Sea. And I don't know if everybody else was just like too shy or didn't know the words, but like I was scream singing it and, and nobody else was singing it. And I was like right there and I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize how bad I was at singing until this moment. So it was very embarrassing. Well, okay. I think my final question is going to be, I recently went to a concert for uh, a singer named Maud Latour. She's actually, she's a, a female singer in New York city. She's really incredible. And also the, the fans were so wholesome. This was the night before the mask mandate was being lifted and everyone kept their mask on like tight all night, no matter what. I was like, oh my God, look at this proper little group. Um, <laughs> and someone, I was standing next to someone who brought her flowers and like passed flowers up for her. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, I want to start bringing like gifts to shows that I go to if you can get them past security. And then right. it got me thinking, what would be like if you could bring something to Kishibashi to like pass him up on stage, what would you bring? Oh, that's a really tough question. My first thought was like a steak, but then I was like, that's <laughs> kind of gross. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but I just gravitate towards something sparkly. You know, like maybe one of those David Bowie crystal balls from Labyrinth or spark something like a sparkly ball. I feel like he would maybe appreciate that. Um, I don't know if you could get that in through security, though. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can pretend security is not an issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like a, a flower bouquet or like a flower crown would be so cute too. I need to see Kishibashi with the flower crown, just ripping into the violin. Mm, that's good. And you could just wear it and then be like, this is part of my outfit. Like, yeah. you, you've got to let it in. I really support that. I plus <laughs> one for Kishi and flower crown. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe I'll figure out how to make or buy a flower crown between now and June 16th. I will know how to find you in the crowd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that'll make meeting you at the concert a lot easier, Jess. A lot easier, yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, I don't know if you have seen this, I mean, the movie Midsummer. Um, no. There is a, a very large flower crown in that movie. Um, and I was Danny for Halloween the year that that movie came out. So I actually do have a giant flower crown, but it is far too large to wear to any concert venue because anyone standing behind you would hate you with a thousand cents. <laughs> That's true. Thankfully, I'm like five three, but I would I'll take it off to pass up. <laughs> I'm really excited also because I I've been thinking about like with this podcast, I want to talk to people about music I love. And I actually don't like a lot of my friends and I don't have all the same music taste. I'm like, how am I going to find people to talk to? And I was like, okay, this randos on the internet thing could go like 
one of two ways and like either this is going to go amazing and I'm going to keep doing this and that's what happened. (laughs) I was like, or it could be like really weird and awkward. Um, But this was so fantastic and like has given me now I'm like, boom, this is what I'm doing. Now I'm going to like internet search for other fans of music I love. Um, Hopefully everyone else lives up to both of your, uh, you know, premiere debuts. (laughs) It'll be pretty tough. I, it will. <laughs> you just have to. You have to go to the shows, and if the crowds at the shows are nice and cool, and you feel like you're singing along with your best friends, then you're probably good to reach out to those people on the internet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you have to count the flower crowns in the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna look for the people carrying like weird ass <laughs> gifts to bring to the stage. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Um, yeah. See ya, see you out there in the world sometime. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We've got two listener voice memos coming up from Denise and Joe, who share their fan stories with Kishibashi. And after that, we will play one last Kishi song on the way out. Check out the list of all the songs played in the episode in the show notes and find out how you can be a part of the show as a co-host or contributor at DontTalkToMePod.com. If you have 10 seconds of time, please leave me a review. Thank you for listening. I remember the first time I saw Kishibashi opening for Sandre Lerka at the Doug Fur Lounge. I remember coming down the stairs in the middle of his set thinking, wow, this guy is something special. I've followed his career closely for the last decade and managed to see him pretty much every time he's come to Portland. The best part about him is that he has recreated his music every time I've seen him, and it seems like he is completely authentic when he is up on stage. I really delight in every moment of the experience. Thank you, Kishi, for a decade of memories. Hey, I'm Joe Rooks, and I am really delighted to share story of my first Kishibashi concert. In 2017, a friend of mine called me up one night and said, Joe, I saw this amazing show in Durham last night. You absolutely have to go if you can. He's going to be in Richmond tonight. And because I trust this friend's judgment so much, I bought a ticket on the spot and got in the car and drove up to Richmond, which was a few hours away from where I lived at the time. It was the first time I'd ever been to anything alone. I got to the concert venue, and it was uh, the Broadberry in Richmond, and the opener was Tall, Tall Trees, and I noticed that the guy I was there to see was actually playing with the band that was opening for him. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, Then before he got onto his normal show, he did a very rough preview of a documentary film he had recently started working on at the time, uh, which became the film that just premiered at South by Southwest. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm very excited to, and I'm very excited to share it with other people. Uh, It's been really cool to watch that come together over the years through watching all of Kishibashi's Instagram stories and things like that, and I'm really looking forward to sharing that with everybody in my life. And then he got on with the show, did an absolutely crazy performance. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen somebody use a violin that way. I've never seen somebody embrace the kind of silliness on stage that he did. I was in the middle of a hard time in my life, and I really needed that sort of lightheartedness to teach me how to laugh and smile, to remind me to look for that kind of beauty. I had actually never even listened to one of his songs before I went to this show, so I had no idea what I was getting into. It was a completely new experience for me. And then at the end of the concert, for the encore, he decided to bring his guitar down onto the floor 
and everybody in the audience gathered around him and he did a full acoustic set with all of us singing along with him. It was really beautiful. And I think it was really the moment that made me a fan of his, seeing the way that he engaged with his community and cared so much about creating a fun experience. It wasn't just standing up on a stage, it was getting down onto the floor and being surrounded by the people that he was there to perform for and there to see smile and laugh at the things that he was doing. It was a very cool thing. I went to both of his uh, West Coast performances in Seattle and Portland this year, and I'm really excited to go to another one of his shows in June here in Seattle. It's been really fun to follow the thread of his career for the last several years, and I'm looking forward to supporting him for a very long time to come. Thank you, Kishibashi, for doing everything you do to make us laugh and smile. Yeah.